0: Welcome to Ask Away with Vince and Joe Vitale and hosted by Michael Davis. Vince and Joe Vitale are currently leading the Zacharias Institute. Both hold doctorates from the University of Oxford, Vince in philosophy, and Joe in Women in the Old Testament. In a world that increasingly sees the Christian faith is irrational and irrelevant, it is more important than ever for believers to be prepared to give a defense for the faith. Ask Away is brought to you by Robbie Zacharias International Ministries, It's time to Ask Away.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Ask Away with Vincent Joe Vitale. I am your host, Michael Davis. It is not a stretch to say that modern culture is at a state where there is barely a category for the concept of sin. Yet scripture is clear that not only is sin serious, it has destroyed our relationship with God. Understanding the magnitude of sin is essential to understanding the need for the cross. But how do we explain this to a world which has rejected the very paradigm of accountability to a moral lawgiver? But before we get started, Vince, could you tell our listeners about RZIM's small group curriculum, Everyday Questions, available through our web store on rzim.org?
2: Yeah, thanks, Michael. We're doing a lot more for churches and resourcing churches, uh, and Everyday Questions uh, is one of the best resources that I've seen for really equipping, whether it's uh, your church small group or whether it's just you and a group of friends or your family, to have everyday conversations and deal with the everyday questions in your life in a way which is going to be uh, helpful, uh, spiritually productive, lead to gospel conversations, and help you be in a place where actually you're looking forward to those questions. You're confident knowing how to respond to them, and also you're confident asking questions as well. And you just see the fruitfulness of your conversations uh, exponentially multiply. We developed this resource uh, in collaboration with Pastor Ryan Hall, uh, and it was a great process where we did a draft. It was then beta tested in the church. We got feedback from all the groups that had gone through it. Then we revised it. We did it again. So this is something that's been tested in the context of the local church, and it's been shown to be really fruitful.
1: Wonderful. Well, let's get started. This first question is from Sandra. Why is it or was it necessary for sins to be paid for or taken away? Why was it necessary for God to have someone pay for the sins of men? Why couldn't God just wipe them away himself?
2: Great question. And I think uh, in a in a Christian context, we sometimes forget how good of a question this is because we just come to a place where we think, well, of course, yeah, Jesus died for my sins. That's, that's normal. That's simple. That makes obvious sense. And we forget uh, that this can seem weird to people. And if we start to think it through, it might even seem weird to us. I mean, if Michael— uh, sins against me which happens all the time
1: um, <laughs> you have no idea and then,
2: and then he comes to me and 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 asks for forgiveness uh, you would say yeah I should just forgive him uh, he doesn't need to pay anything I don't I don't need to ask him for anything you know further I just forgive him so this might be a really confusing uh, concept uh, and yet as Christians you know we just walk around with crosses around our necks like it's normal uh, and we forget you know we're walking around with an execution device around our around our necks and you know to the average person there might Be some serious questions about this. So, Sandra, thank you uh, for the question and reminding us that we need to be able to translate and explain uh, some of the beauty of the gospel so that it can be appreciated. So, uh, why is it the case that there would have to be uh, this payment? Why is it that sins have to be taken away? Uh, And as a starting point, I think you can't possibly understand the answer to that question unless we understand the seriousness of sin. I think if we think that our sins are no big deal, then we'll never understand the idea of there having to be a serious consequent or payment for that. And there are a variety of different examples in my life that helped me come to appreciate that. Uh, One that I remember was reading uh, an article about a young woman uh, who had been raped uh, and the rapist had served uh, three months in jail. And then the parents were quoted as saying, we thought our little girl was worth more than that. Uh, and you know, if you just look the other way and just say, you know what, it's just no big deal that that happened. We can just um, push that sin to the side. There doesn't need to be a payment Uh, for that. You know, you're not taking seriously the value and the sanctity of human life and the wrong that was committed. And maybe I'll just read this one more uh, quote. This is a quote you often use, uh, Joe. This is the Yale theologian, Miroslav Volf, and uh, and he came to a place where initially he didn't understand why there would have to be this payment, and then he came to a place where he did understand it, and he explains that in this quote. He says, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? He says, my last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. How did God react to that carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry? And then he goes on to say, though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love.
0: I think sometimes um, where we get a bit confused here is we say, well, fair enough for the you know, the people who are perpetrators of that kind of violence or, or the rapist, you know, is the other example here. Those people are clearly terrible. So obviously their sins, something needs to be done to them. There needs to be justice for them. But I think we can't always see um, why why that would be the same for us. And so I think one thing I want to say, Uh, to kind of expand it, if you like, is that sin isn't just the problem of the murderer or the person we see on the news, but actually it's a problem that every one of us struggles within our own hearts. Now, that's not to say that all sin is the same, which is something that you might have occasionally heard a Christian say. I actually don't think the Bible says that anywhere. I think some sins are clearly much more heinous and horrendous than others. And I think God is a just God and he sees, um, sees that clearly as well. But I think what people are really trying to get at here is the idea we're all in the same boat with respect to sin in the sense that um, if we're not comparing ourselves to the person on the news or a neighbor down the street, but actually when we compare ourselves to a holy God, suddenly we realize that no matter what sins we've committed, they may not be as horrendous as um, as, some, as what Hitler did or Stalin did, but but it doesn't mean they're not serious enough that that the Bible talks about it this way. It says we're actually dead in our sin. That's the reality. Our pastor said it um Really well, the other day in church, actually, when he said that, um, you know, when you look at a dead body, it, it, they may have died yesterday or they may have been dead for several months and, and they're going to look kind of different depending on how long they've been dead. But he basically said that there's pretty dead and there's ugly dead, but it's still dead, what, whatever the case, it's dead. And, and that's what the Bible speaks of. It says that we're dead in our sins. And um, it's, it's why Ravi says Jesus didn't come to make bad people good, He came to make dead people live. And so, coming to, back to your question, Sandra, you said, why is it necessary um, for God to have someone pay for the sins of men. Well, well the point here is if justice is to be served then somebody has to pay so what does God do? I mean God doesn't have to have someone pay but then if God himself isn't paying for it then it means that men are paying and what is the outworking of that justice? Well that means that we stay dead the judgment is death that's how serious it is I um, I love Agatha Christie uh, she's a, a British writer who um, wrote a lot of murder mysteries some of you may have seen Murder on the Orient Express but she has a fantastic book called Murder at the Vicarage um, but in it The the heroine of the book is called Miss Marple, who's sort of this elderly lady who solves crimes. She, She has this amazing line where she says, I was thinking that when my time comes, I should be sorry if the only plea I had to offer was that of justice, because it might mean that only justice would be meted out to me. So the point here is this. If all we have to hang on to is the justice that we deserve, then we're paying for our own sins. And that means we all stay dead. So what then does God do? Well, God himself is the one. He takes it on himself. And it's interesting. You asked the question, why couldn't God just wipe mm. them away himself? Now, yeah. I don't think he wipes them away in the sense that he sweeps it all under the carpet or says, hey, no big deal, because it is a big deal. The ways we wrong and violate and demean and dehumanize one another is very, very serious. But but he does take it on himself. The difference is he doesn't wipe it away. He pays for it. He himself takes on the punishment that we deserve.
2: Yeah, and just this idea of someone else uh, making the payment for your sin, that can seem like a, a somewhat confusing idea as well. Our colleague, Wasim, at one of our most recent events at the Zacharias Institute, I thought, put it really well. He focused in on this idea of when we become Christians, the Bible talks about us becoming in Christ. And he says, when you become in Christ, it's like a marriage. Um, God has come down and he's lived a human life. He's taken on a human nature. He's united himself to us in a really deep way. Uh, And when we accept him, something of a marriage uh, takes place. And so in the same way that if when Joe and I got married, if she was in debt, once we got married, I was in debt too. Uh, And if I was rich, once we got married, she would have been rich as well. And if she was in debt and we got married... And I was in debt, I could choose to pay that debt on her behalf, and she would no longer be in debt. So the fact that Jesus can do this for us makes sense in light of the fact that he was willing to come and live a human nature and unite himself to us in such an intimate way that he can both take on our sins, not be sinful himself, but take on our sins and also make the payment for them so that he fulfills both love and justice.
0: I'm very glad that that's the case, given all the student loans I had to pay when we got married.
2: Yeah, that's right. You had the debt. If only I had the riches. <laughs> and there you go.
0: Um, but I think maybe part of the question here that, you know, sometimes what people will say is, but it seems so unfair because it's Jesus paying. And I think maybe that that's part of your question, Sandra, is is it seems to be as if you're, that you're seeing a difference between God paying and Jesus paying but actually what the Bible makes very clear is that that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself that's one way that scripture describes it um, another way it's described is God demonstrated his love for us in this while we were still sinners Christ died for us so on a scriptural basis the understanding here is, that, is that actually God himself is in Christ, that Christ isn't separate from God but actually he is the son of God and, um, and so really this is something that God is taking on himself, Jesus says, "You know, I'm no innocent victim here." He says, "No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord." This is a choice that um, the Trinity have made together, and it's something that they enact together. Now they have different roles to play within that, but from start to finish, this is an act of God done by God for every single one of us.
1: I, I like the idea that God is not arbitrary. I know that in um, in in you know, if you look at uh, Buddhism, if you look at uh, Islam you don't know whether or not you've done enough. Mm. One of the things I really like about the Christian faith, and actually I think the universe uh, screams it, is the fact that God is consistent. If you look at physics, if you look at mathematics, there is a consistency, I think, in God's nature. And one of the things I like to know uh, and I can feel comfort in is the fact that God is consistent in regards to sin. Someone will pay for it, whether it is you and like Joe said, where uh, you will stay dead or whether or not that, uh, that penalty uh, will be put on Christ. Ultimately, I like the fact that God is mm-hmm. so loving and so just that nothing, that, that, that there is no arbitrary nature. I don't have to worry about, is this sin bad enough where I am, okay, I am I'm, I'm beyond redemption. I know that God sees mm-hmm. sin and he sees the, the the magnitude of it and the seriousness of it, and he's consistent. And that, to, to I think, should give us comfort because ultimately we don't have to worry whether or not we have done enough. We know that Jesus has done enough.
0: I also appreciate the fact that justice still takes place in the sense that while Christ died for us, we still need to repent and we need to accept that death on our behalf. And there is a sense in which for those who don't accept Christ, that judgment is still to come. So it's not that God doesn't care about justice here, but when we accept Christ, um, I, I love the way that Scripture talks about baptism, this idea, like Vince is saying, that as Christ has died, so we die and we're raised to life with his life. The idea being that actually the sinner that you were really is put to death and stays dead. But when you are raised with Christ you have a new life and the Bible describes it as us being made to be new creations and there really is a sense in which you're not that person anymore which is how we can answer those who say well it seems so wildly unfair that if I go to heaven I might wind up there with
1: mm. uh,
0: with, with, say my abuser what if they became a Christian and now I have to spend eternity with them which is how I've heard some people put it but the point is the person you're spending eternity with is no longer that person because that person died with Christ and, and they've been raised to uh, receive the life that Christ died to give them and they're just not even the same person anymore in the most real and important sense and I've mentioned it before but if you want evidence for the fact that transformation can really take place um, go spend some time doing prison ministry because you know when I saw the men that I used to work with in that prison who'd been rapists and murderers and then had become completely changed and completely transformed and it wasn't just like they had better manners or they were obeying <laughs> the rules better they were different people and and the way that they loved was, was so beautiful that I wouldn't get through a single service there with him without crying because it was so real and and such visible evidence to me of the difference that only God could make in a person's life. Yeah, that's right. And,
2: and how powerful it is then when that young woman's parents are able to say to God, we thought our daughter was worth more than that. And he can turn around and say, she is and yeah. she was worth more than that. She was worth so much that it cost me my life. That's how much I think your daughter is worth.
1: Outstanding. Well, let's get into the second question. And this is from Grant. Um, Christians say that the gospel is good news, and it is for Christians. However, how is it good news when you realize that many of your family and friends will end up in hell? It would seem like a compassionate person would grieve and be devastated of the reality that many people that we have come to know will be in eternal conscious torment. Why should I be joyful or call the gospel good news if I know that many in this world will suffer the punishment of hell?
0: Grant, I can't even tell you how much I appreciate your question, and um, and what I really love about what you're saying is, I feel like you are absolutely recognizing the reality of the situation that we're in, and. Um, and, and I sometimes feel a similar frustration to you, actually. Sometimes you can spend time with, sometimes spending time with Christians, it feels a little bit like that. You know that scene in the Titanic when when the kind of rich, wealthy people are the only ones who get rescued on the boats and then they all just kind of row away and then they're sitting there happily in their boat, so glad that that they were fortunate enough to be saved while everyone else is drowning in the boat. And 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 that drives me crazy because I feel like that is so far from from the heart of God. And, um, and actually, I think you're absolutely right to feel devastated over this because I believe that God feels devastated. Yeah. I mean, look at the, the words Jesus uses when he actually, he's, you know, he's moving towards Jerusalem, he's on his way to his death, and he says, this, this tragic lament over the city says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that stones the prophets and kills those sent to her. How I long to gather you like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. And you can kind of hear the grief in his voice, like, I want to save you, but you won't even let me. And this is breaking my heart that that I'm actually coming to redeem you. And I already know you're going to kill me um, because that's how you respond to me. You know, elsewhere in Ezekiel, God says, do I take any pleasure in the death of the the wicked? Rather, don't I desire that he should turn from his ways and live. You know, God. God's longing um, is for us to have life. And I genuinely think it, it grieves him so deeply um, that we are in the situation that we're in. And so I think actually the fact you're asking this question really speaks to the fact that you have the heart of God, a, a God who's, whose heart is broken over the situation that the world is in and the mess that we have have created for ourselves. So actually, um, I I really want to commend you for for feeling the the pain of the situation, first and foremost.
2: Yeah, and just to kind of frame the nature of hell a bit, because I think we can't understand this question unless we understand something of what hell is, and and hell is not just a place, uh, but it's also a state of one's heart. It's a state of choosing to be away from God, of rebelling against God. And relationship is only meaningful if it's freely entered into from both sides. Uh, it's only meaningful if someone is given a free choice to enter into relationship. And if that's the case, then you can't make it inevitable that someone is going to make that choice. You can't both put meaningful relationship at the center of reality and say that is the highest good, and yet at the same time ensure that everyone is going to make that choice for you. That's the situation that God is in. And I think sometimes we are asking things of God that are not even possible realities. In the same way that you know, if I say, God, why didn't you make a square circle? Uh, God's going to say, Well, you haven't even identified anything. There's no such thing as a square circle. You can't draw it on a on a piece of paper and say, you know. I'd like you to make one. You, you put some words next to each other, but it doesn't refer to anything. And sometimes what we hope for, what we want, is for God to make people free, make it the case that uh, meaningful relationship is at the center of reality, but then force it to be the case that everyone chooses him. If that's the case, you've taken the freedom away, and then meaningful relationship is not at the center of reality. So this is the question, really, should God not have created at all? Or should He have created us with the opportunity to live a meaningful life and to make a choice for Him or against Him, but if for Him, then to live in the fullness of life for all eternity? And I guess I can only speak for myself, but if I was given that choice of either just not being created or being created in this meaningful state where I get to make a choice for or against God, I would want to be given that opportunity.
0: What I I do want to say to your question— in terms of can we say then that anything is good news, is actually even in the midst of the tragic and messy situation that you're that we're in I still think we do have something to call good news I mean if you think about that scene again of everyone kind of drowning in the water it is good news that rather than us being left in that situation there's actually a god who is determined to rescue us and um you know I think sometimes we can get into that state of mind where we say oh it all seems so unfair that um you know that that given how bad the situation is I'm just going to stay in the water with everybody else but but is that the right response or is it to say no God rescue me I want to get in that boat with you and then I want to make it my life life's commitment to to join you in rescuing other people. And and I just think, wow, like in the midst of so much pain and darkness, how amazing that there is a God who steps down, even though it cost him everything, his very life um, to rescue us because he's that committed to giving us hope in a world of so much darkness and where there is so much struggle and people are dying. There's a God who's determined to bring life. And so I think the response for us as Christians is to, is to say, yes, first and foremost, there's bad news, and the bad news is we actually need saving, but there is good news too, and that there, that the good news is that there is a God who wants to save you. And how about instead of being the people who are sitting in the boat smug about the fact that we've made it, we become the people who, who allow our hearts to be transformed by the heart of God, a, a God who is saviour, a God who is rescuer and redeemer, um, and become like him in laying down our lives in order to help rescue other people.
1: I think what real injustice is the fact that there was plenty of room on that door. I don't know why Jack right, had to drown. I know. I'll never <laughs> let go, Jack. <laughs> Literally, I'll never nah, let go. And then she like shoves it yeah, in. And then she's she just like, like you It's like, like that door it's could have just, had four or yeah. five people on there. She's it's a horrible person. I'll never terrible. let go Yeah, never, until right now. Until right now. I'll never let go, Jack.
2: I, I was going to throw in one more example, if it's okay, that I was thinking <laughs> yes. about if we can if we can even try to recapture the conversation am, after okay, that's that. That's my fault. I'm sorry. You <laughs> know, If I discover a cure for cancer and it's working, people are being cured from cancer, but some people aren't willing to try it and therefore still die from cancer, I'm still going to call that cure for cancer incredibly good news. And I'm going to try to persuade as many people as possible to trust in it and to try it. And that's exactly what the Christian is called to do, to say, this is good news. Not everyone is willing to trust it, but what do you do when you have incredibly good news that people are resisting? You try to persuade them that this is good news and that it needs to be part of their life as well. And so that's what what we try and do, you know, each of us personally and as a ministry as well.
1: I'm going to echo what you said, Joe. Um, This should break your heart, but now that your heart is broken, what does that do in your heart? Does that does that convict you of the fact that you aren't doing more evangelism? Are you reaching your lost family and neighbors because you understand the absolute seriousness of the fact of where they're heading to and the seriousness of sin? Because if your heart is just broken, which I think every if your heart is not broken for the lost, I would be I would be hard to it would be hard for me to say that you are truly indwelt by the Spirit because that is the Spirit of God, like you said, Vince. Mm-hmm. But if your heart is broken and you're sitting still, you're like a firefighter firefighter watching a house burn with people screaming on the second floor, having the ability to do something about it and standing back and doing nothing. That is how – that makes as much sense as that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And
1: sometimes we think
2: it's so much more complicated than it is. You know, we were on mission last week with one of our colleagues, Kevin, and – uh one of one of our team had given a talk and had clearly laid out the gospel and a non Christian had come to the talk, Kevin wound up sitting next to her. And at the end of the talk, he just said, you know, would you be interested in having a, a deeper relationship with God? Yes I would. Did you understand when the gospel was explained and would you want to accept Christ into your life? Yes I would. <laughs> Would you like to do that now? (laughs) Yes, I would. Three questions, uh, positive answers. And the amazing thing is that, you know, for what percentage of us would we have sat next to the same person? And as soon as the talk finished, we would have said, so what do you study? You know, what? (laughs) really, we just heard a talk on the gospel and God coming down and incarnating and taking on human nature and dying for us. And then we just tend to ask people, you know, what's your major? So sometimes it's more simple than we think, but it's just actually focusing on what is Mm -hmm. most important, the fact that God has saved us in this miraculous way.
0: And the truth of the matter is, I mean, for those of us who grew up in, in Christian homes or... Um, have always been going to church. The only reason we're even in this privileged position in the first place is because those first apostles were were absolutely committed to that message, you know, so much so they were willing to give their lives. And, you know, when you hear the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians and um, he says, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And you can kind of hear his desperation there, just this longing that people would come to know God. And we have some amazing role models. I mean, um, we, we've just been hearing all over the news recently that Billy Graham has just died. And look at him as an example of somebody who made it their whole life's mm. mission to be c- committed to pulling people out of that fire or pulling them out of the water and onto the boat. And it's because he got it. He got it. He got what was at stake, and and he he was willing to take all of the scorn and the ridicule and, and looking silly for the sake of Christ but if it would mean that some people would get rescued. So um, let's look to him as an inspiration and say, how could we do less?
1: I would also, because uh, I think under this question is, how can I be happy about myself being saved when I know that a great portion of my family? And, and mm-hmm. if this is the case for you, uh, Grant, uh, or if these are your friends, trust me when I say I understand. Uh, I, no one in my in in my family, ex- external to my immediate family, my wife and children, and then uh, on on my side, none of them are believers. I feel what you're saying. and it breaks my heart. But one of the things that I can rely on is the the promises in Scripture that one day God will wipe away every tear. and when we're on that side, of, of the new heavens and the new earth, God will will have a fuller understanding of God's love and God's justice, and we will know that he was just and he was good in everything that he did. But that does not—it's not really, to be honest, as, as a person who lives in this world— it, that is almost academic for me. And this is in just being completely open. Mm-hmm. I know where unless God does some miraculous stuff like he did with me and like he did with you guys as well, mm-hmm. and every believer is listening to this show, um, that that's where they're heading. Um, but I, I have that trust. But it is. It's it's devastating. It really is. Yeah, I think you're right, uh,
2: Michael, to look to that hope in the future. And I think in of 1 Corinthians 2, Verse 9, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived. uh, Those are the things that God has prepared for those who love him. And so I think sometimes we're just in such a limited perspective. And when we look to the future and what eternal life uh, beyond this life can can be like, we just have no awareness of what that is. And so we try to imagine when we ask this question, we try to imagine, well, what's the the best day that I've experienced here on earth? Uh, And maybe if I just make all my days like that, that's what God has waiting. No, whatever we can conceive of, whatever our ear has heard, whatever eye has seen is just the smallest, smallest drop of what God is preparing. Well, guys, we are out of time. Vince, sum it up for us. Well, this is always going to be a difficult question, and rightly so. And it's an emotional question, and rightly so. Uh, But there's really two different intuitions when we start to think about hell and God's justice. I've had people say to me, I can't believe in a God who would allow someone to go to hell. And then I've had other people say to me, I can't believe in a God who would allow my perpetrator to go to heaven. So depending on what you are going through in life. You could feel either one of those intuitions, the intuition for universal love and mercy, or the intuition for strong justice in the face of evil. You could, you could feel either one of those equally uh, strongly. And our colleague, Sean Hart gave a really interesting and I thought powerful example in one of his last talks. He said, imagine that someone murdered someone that you loved very much, murdered a sibling of yours. And then imagine that you showed up at the jail desiring justice and then you showed up and you saw that the person in the jail cell who had killed your sibling was your other sibling. That's the impossible situation that God is in where he has to uphold justice because of his love for those who have been wronged and yet he loves every single person because they are his creation. They are, uh, metaphorically, his offspring. And so love and justice, they seem to be in tension, and God provides the most beautiful, the most creative, the most profound uh, and concrete resolution to that tension you could ever imagine when he comes down, and out of complete love for us, he dies on the cross, and in that he fulfills the full requirements of justice, not love at the expense of justice, not justice at the expense of love. And we believe that's what you find in every other worldview, but only in the Christian worldview, love and justice in perfect unity.
1: Vincent, Joe, thank you guys for joining me. Thank you all out there for listening, and we will catch you next week.
0: To find out more about our ministry or to donate, visit our website at rzim.org. If you're listening in Canada, that website is rzim.ca.